Section 28 of Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 15. Conquest of England by the Normans. Part 1. At the beginning of the eleventh century, Robert, called the Magnificent, the fifth in succession from the great chieftain Rollo, who had established the Northmen in France, was Duke of Normandy. To have the nickname he earned by his nobleness and liberality some chronicles have added another, and call him Robert the Devil, by reason of his reckless and violent deeds of audacity, whether in private life or in warlike expeditions. Hence a lively controversy amongst the learned upon the question of deciding to which Robert to apply the latter epithet. Some persist in assigning it to the Duke of Normandy, others seek for some other Robert upon whom to hoist it. However that may be, in 1034 or 1035, after having led a fair life enough from the political point of view, but one full of turbulence and moral irregularity, Duke Robert resolved to undertake, barefooted and staff in hand, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to expiate his sins if God would deign to consent thereto. The Norman prelates and barons, having been summoned around him, conjured him to renounce his plan, for to what troubles and perils would not his dominions be exposed without lord or assured successor? By my faith, said Robert, I will not leave ye lordless. I have a young bastard who will grow, please God, and of whose good qualities I have great hope. Take him, I pray you, for lord." That he was not born in wedlock matters little to you. He will be none the less able in battle, or at court, or in the palace, or to render you justice. I make him my heir, and I hold him seized from this present of the whole duchy of Normandy. And they who were present assented, but not without objection and disquietude. There was certainly ample reason for objection and disquietude. Not only was it a child of eight years of age to whom Duke Robert, at setting out on his pious pilgrimage, was leaving Normandy, but this child had been pronounced bastard by the duke his father at the moment of taking him for his heir. Nine or ten years before at Falaise, his favourite residence, Robert had met, according to some at a people's dance, according to others on the banks of a stream where she was washing linen with her companions, a young girl named Harlette or Harlieve, daughter of a tanner in the town, where they show to this day, it is said, the window from which the duke saw her for the first time. She pleased his fancy, and was not more straight-laced than the duke was scrupulous, and Fulbert, the tanner, kept but little watch over his daughter. Robert gave the son born to him in 1027 the name of his glorious ancestor, William Longsword, the son and successor of Rollo. The child was reared, according to some, in his father's palace, right honourably as if he had been born in wedlock, but according to others, in the house of his grandfather, the tanner, and one of the neighbouring burgesses, as he saw passing one of the principal Norman lords, William de Belmez, surnamed the Fierce Talvis, stopped him, ironically saying, "'Come in, my lord, and admire your suzerain's son.' The origin of young William was in every mouth, and gave occasion for familiar allusions more often insulting than flattering. The epithet bastard was, so to speak, incorporated with his name, and we cannot be astonished that it lived in history— for in the height of his power he sometimes accepted it proudly, calling himself, in several of his charters, William the Bastard, Guillermus Nottlesus. He showed himself to be none the less acceptable on this point when in 1048, 
during the siege of Alcinon, the domain of the Lord de Melmez, the inhabitants hung from their walls hides all raw and covered with dirt, which they shook when they caught sight of William, with cries of, "'Plenty of work for the tanner!' "'By the glory of God,' cried William, "'they shall pay me dear for this insolent bravery.' After an assault several of the besieged were taken prisoners. He had their eyes pulled out, and their feet and hands cut off, and shot from his siege-machines these mutilated members over the walls of the city. Notwithstanding his recklessness and his being engrossed in his pilgrimage, Duke Robert had taken some care for the situation in which he was leaving his son, and some measures to lessen its perils. He had appointed Regent of Normandy, during William's minority, his cousin, Alain V, Duke of Brittany, whose sagacity and friendship he had proved, and he had confided the personal guardianship of the child, not to his mother Harlette, who was left very much out in the cold, but to one of his most trusty officers, Gilbert Crespon, Count of Brion, and the strong castle of Vaudreuil, the first foundation of which dated back, it was said, to Queen Fredegond, was assigned for the usual residence of the young duke. Lastly, to confirm with brilliancy his son's right as his successor to the Duchy of Normandy, and to assure him a powerful ally, Robert took him himself to the court of his suzerain, Henri I, King of France, who recognized the title of William the Bastard, and allowed him to take the oath of allegiance and homage. Having thus prepared as best he could for his son's future, Robert set out on his pilgrimage. He visited Rome and Constantinople, everywhere displaying his magnificence, together with his humility. He fell ill from sheer fatigue whilst crossing Asia Minor, and was obliged to be carried in a litter by four negroes. "'Go and tell them at home,' said he to a Norman pilgrim he met returning from the Holy Land, "'that you saw me being carried to paradise by four devils.' On arriving at Jerusalem, where he was received with great attention by the Mussulman emir in command there, he discharged himself of his pious vow, and took the road back to Europe. But he was poisoned, by whom or for what motive is not clearly known, at Nicaea in Bithynia, where he was buried in the Basilica of St. Mary, an honour, says the chronicle, which had never been accorded to anybody. From 1025 to 1042, during William's minority, Normandy was a prey to the robber-like ambition, the local quarrels, and the turbulent and brutal passions of a host of petty castle-holders, nearly always at war, either amongst themselves or with the young chieftain whose power they did not fear, and whose rights they disputed. In vain did Duke Alain of Brittany, in his capacity as regent appointed by Duke Robert, attempt to re-establish order, and just when he seemed on the road to success he was poisoned by those who could not succeed in beating him. Henri I, King of France, being ill-disposed at his bottom towards his Norman neighbours and their young duke, for all that he had acknowledged him, profited by this anarchy to filch from him certain portions of territory. Attacks without warning, fearful murders, implacable vengeance, and sanguinary disturbances in the towns, were evils which became common and spread. The clergy strove with courageous perseverance against the vices and crimes of the period. The bishops convoked councils in their dioceses, the laic lords, and even the people, were summoned to them, the peace of God was proclaimed, and the priests, having in their hands lighted tapers, turned them towards the ground and extinguished them, whilst the populace repeated in chorus, So may God extinguish the joys of those who refuse to observe peace and justice. The majority, however, of the Norman lords, refused to enter into the engagement. In default of peace, it was necessary to be content with the truce of God. It commenced on Wednesday evening at sunset and concluded on Monday at sunrise. 
During the four days and five nights, comprised in this interval, all aggression was forbidden. No slaying, wounding, pillaging, or burning could take place. But from sunrise on Monday to sunset on Wednesday, for three days and two nights, any violence became allowable, any crime might recommence. Meanwhile William was growing up, and the omens that had been drawn from his early youth raised the popular hopes. It was reported that at his very birth, when the midwife had put him unswaddled in a little heap of straw, he had wriggled about and drawn together the straw with his hands, insomuch that the midwife said, By my faith, this child beginneth full young to take and heap up. I know not what he will do when he is grown. At a little later period, when a burgess of Falaise drew the attention of the Lord William de Bellaise to the gay and sturdy lad as he played amongst his mates, the fierce vassal muttered between his teeth, Accursed be thou of God, for I be certain that by thee mine honours will be lowered. The child, on becoming man, was handsomer and handsomer, and so lively and spirited that it seemed to all a marvel. Amongst his mates, command became soon a habit with him. He made them form a line of battle, he gave them the word of command, and he constituted himself their judge in all quarrels. At a still later period, having often heard talk of revolts excited against him, and of disorders which troubled the country, he was moved in consequence to fits of violent irritation, which, however, he learned instinctively to hide, and in his child's heart, says the chronicle, he had welling up all the vigour of a man to teach the Normans to forbear from all acts of irregularity. At fifteen years of age, in 1042, he demanded to be armed knight, and to fulfil all forms necessary for having the right to serve and command in all ranks. These forms were in Normandy, by a relic, it is said, of the Danish and pagan customs, more connected with war and less with religion than elsewhere. The young candidates were not bound to confess, to spend a vigil in the church, and to receive from the priest's hands the sword he had consecrated on the altar. It was even the custom to say that he whose sword had been girded upon him by a long-robed cleric was no true knight, but a sit without spirit. The day on which William, for the first time, donned his armour, was for his servants and all the spectators a gala day. He was so tall, so manly in face, and so proud of bearing, that it was a sight both pleasant and terrible to see him guiding his horse's career, flashing with his sword, gleaming with his shield, and threatening with his casque and javelins. His first act of government was a rigorous decree against such as should be guilty of murder, arson, and pillage, but he at the same time granted an amnesty for past revolts, on condition of fealty and obedience for the future. For the establishment, however, of a young and disputed authority, there is need of something more than brilliant ceremonies and words partly minatory and partly coaxing. William had to show what he was made of. A conspiracy was formed against him in the heart of his feudal court, and almost of his family. He had given kindly welcome to his cousin, Guy of Burgundy, and had even bestowed on him as a fief the countships of Vernon and Brion. In 1044 the young duke was at Valognes, when suddenly, at midnight, one of his trustiest servants, Gaulet, his fool, such as the great lords of the time kept, knocked at the door of his chamber, crying, "'Open, open, my lord duke! Fly, fly, or you are lost! They are armed! They are getting ready! To Terry's death!' William did not hesitate. He got up, ran to the stables, saddled his horse with his own hands, started off, followed a road called to this day the duke's way, and reached Falaise as a place of safety. There news came to him that the conspiracy was taking the form of insurrection, and that the rebels were seizing his domains. William showed no more hesitation at Falaise than at Valogne. He started off at once, 
repaired to Poissy, where Henri I, King of France, was then residing, and claimed as vassal the help of his suzerain against traitors. Henri, who himself was brave, was touched by this bold confidence, and promised his young vassal effectual support. William returned to Normandy, summoned his lieges, and took to the field promptly. King Henri joined him at Argens, with a body of three thousand men-at-arms, and a battle took place on the 10th of August, 1047, at Val des Dunes, three leagues from Caen. It was very hotly contested. King Henri, unhorsed by lance-thrust, ran a risk of his life, but he remounted and valiantly returned to the melee. William dashed in whenever the fight was the thickest, showing himself everywhere as able in command as ready to expose himself. A Norman lord, Raoul de Tesson, held aloof with a troop of one hundred and forty knights. "'Who is he that bids yonder, motionless?' asked the French king of the young duke. "'It is the banner of Raoul de Tesson,' answered William. "'I wot not that he hath aught against me.' But, though he had no personal grievance, Raoul de Tesson had joined the insurgents, and sworn that he would be the first to strike the duke in the conflict. Thinking better of it, and perceiving William from afar, he pricked towards him, and taking off his glove struck him gently on the shoulder, saying, I swore to strike you, and so I am quit, but fear nothing more from me. Thanks, Raoul, said William. Be well disposed, I pray you. Raoul waited until the two armies were at grips, and when he saw which way victory was inclined, he hastened to contribute thereto. It was decisive, and William the Bastard returned to Val des Dunes, really Duke of Normandy. He made vigorous but not cruel use of his victory. He demolished his enemy's strong castles, magazines as they were for pillage no less than bulwarks of feudal independence, but there is nothing to show that he indulged in violence towards persons. He was even generous to the chief concocter of the plot, Guy of Burgundy. He took from him the countships of Vernon and Brion, but permitted him still to live at his court, a place which the Burgundian found himself too ill at ease to remain in, so he returned to Burgundy, to conspire against his own eldest brother. William was stern without hatred and merciful without kindliness, only thinking which of the two might promote or retard his success, gentleness or severity. There soon came an opportunity for him to return to the King of France the kindness he had received. Geoffrey Martel, Duke of Anjou, being ambitious and turbulent beyond the measure of his power, got embroiled with the King his suzerain, and war broke out between them. The Duke of Normandy went to the aid of King Henri, and made his success certain, which cost the duke the fierce hostility of the court of Anjou and a four years' war with that inconvenient neighbour, a war full of dangerous incidents, wherein William enhanced his character, already great, for personal valour. In an ambuscade laid for him by Geoffrey Martel he lost some of his best knights, whereat he was so wroth, says Chronicle, that he galloped down with such force upon Geoffrey, and struck him in such wise with his sword, that he dinted his helm, cut through his hood, lopped off his ear, and with the same blow felled him to the earth. But the Count was lifted up and remounted, and so fled away. William made rapid advances both as prince and as man. Without being austere in his private life, he was regular in his habits, and patronized order and respectability in his household as well as in his dominions. He resolved to marry to his own honour, and to the promotion of his greatness. Baldwin the Debonair, Count of Flanders, one of the most powerful lords of the day, had a daughter, Matilda, beautiful, well-informed, firm in the faith, a model of virtue and modesty. William asked her hand in marriage. Matilda refused, saying, I would rather be a veiled nun than given in marriage to a bastard. Hurt as he was, William did not give up. 
He was even more persevering than susceptible, but he knew that he must get still greater, and make an impression upon a young girl's imagination by the splendour of his fame and power. Some years later, being firmly established in Normandy, dreaded by all his neighbours, and already showing some foreshadowings of his design upon England, he renewed his matrimonial quest in Flanders. But after so strange a fashion that, in spite of contemporary testimony, several of the modern historians, in their zeal, even at so distant a period, for observance of the proprieties, reject as fabulous the story which is here related on the authority of the most detailed account amongst all the chronicles which contain it. A little after that Duke William had heard how the damsel had made answer. He took of his folk, and went privately to Lille, where the Duke of Flanders and his wife and his daughter then were. He entered into the hall, and passing on, as if to do some business, went into the Countess's chamber, and there found the damsel, daughter of Count Baldwin. He took her by the tresses, dragged her round the chamber, trampled her underfoot, and did beat her soundly. Then he strode forth from the chamber, leapt upon his horse, which was being held for him before the hall, struck in his spurs, and went his way. At this deed was Count Baldwin much enraged, and when matters had thus remained a while, Duke William sent once more to Count Baldwin to parley again of the marriage. The Count sounded his daughter on the subject, and she answered that it pleased her well. So the nuptials took place with very great joy. And after the aforesaid matters, Count Baldwin, laughing withal, asked his daughter wherefore she had so lightly accepted the marriage she had aforetime so cruelly refused. And she answered that she did not then know the Duke so well as she did now. For, said she, if he had not great heart and high emprise, he had not been so bold as to dare come and beat me in my father's chamber. Amongst the historians who treat this story as romantic and untruth-like fable, some believe themselves to have discovered, in diverse documents of the eleventh and twelfth centuries, circumstances almost equally singular as regards the cause of the obstacles met with at first by Duke William, in his pretensions to the hand of Princess Matilda, and as regards the motive for the first refusal on the part of Matilda herself. According to some, the Flemish princess had conceived a strong passion for a noble Saxon, Britic Mew, who had been sent by King Edward the Confessor to the court of Flanders, and who was remarkable for his beauty. She wished to marry him, but the handsome Saxon was not willing, and Matilda at first gave way to violent grief on that account, and afterwards, when she became Queen of England, to vindictive hatred, the weight of which she made him feel severely. Other writers go still farther, and say that, before being sought in marriage by William, Matilda had not fallen in love with a handsome Saxon, but had actually married a Flemish burgess, named Gerbod, patron of the church of St. Durton, at St. Omer, and that she had by him two and perhaps three children, traces of whom recur, it is said, under the reign of William, King of England. There is no occasion to enter upon the learned controversies of which these different allegations have been the cause. It is sufficient to say that they have led to nothing but obscurity, contradiction, and doubt, and that there is more moral verisimilitude in the account just given, especially in Matilda's first prejudice against marriage with a bastard, and in her conversation with her father, Count Baldwin, when she had changed her opinion upon the subject. Independently of the testimony of several chroniclers, French and English, this tradition is mentioned, with all the simplicity of belief, in one of the principal Flemish chronicles, and as to the ruffianly gallantry employed by William to win his bride, there is nothing in it very singular, considering the habits of the time, and we meet with more than one example of adventures, if not exactly similar, at any rate very analogous. However that may be, 
This marriage brought William an unexpected opportunity of entering into personal relations with one of the most distinguished men of his age, and a man destined to become one of his own most intimate advisers. In 1019, at the Council of Rheims, Pope Leo IX, on political grounds rather than because of a prohibited decree of relationship, had opposed the marriage of the Duke of Normandy with the daughter of the Duke of Flanders, and had pronounced his veto upon it. William took no heed, and in 1052 or 1053 his marriage was celebrated at Rouen with great pomp, but this ecclesiastical veto waited upon his mind, and he sought some means of getting it taken off. A learned Italian, Lanfranc, a juris consul of some fame already, whilst travelling in France and repairing from Avranches to Rouen, was stopped near Briand by brigands, who, having plundered him, left him, with his eyes bandaged in a forest. His cries attracted the attention of passers-by, who took him to a neighbouring monastery, but lately founded by a pious Norman knight retired from the world. Lanfranc was received in it, became a monk of it, was elected its prior, attracted to it by his learned teachings a host of pupils, and won therein his own great renown whilst laying the foundation for that of the Abbey of B, which was destined to be carried still higher by one of his disciples, St. Anselm. Lanfranc was eloquent, great in dialectics, of a sprightly wit, and lively in repartee. Relying upon the Pope's decision, he spoke ill of William's marriage with Matilda. William was informed of this, and in a fit of despotic anger, ordered Lanfranc to be driven from the monastery and banished from Normandy, and even, it is said, the dependency which he inhabited as a prior of the abbey to be burned. The order was executed, and Lanfranc set out, mounted on a sorry little horse given him, no doubt, by the abbey. By what chance is not known, but probably on a hunting-party, his favourite diversion, William, with his retinue, happened to cross the road which Lanfranc was slowly pursuing. "'My lord,' said the monk, addressing him, "'I am obeying your orders. I am going away, but my horse is a sorry beast. If you will give me a better one, I will go faster.' William halted, entered into conversation with Lanfranc, let him stay, and sent him back with a present to his abbey. A little while afterwards Lanfranc was at Rome, and defended before Pope Victor II William's marriage with Matilda. He was successful, and the Pope took off the veto on the sole condition that the couple, in sign of penitence, should each found a religious house. Matilda accordingly founded at Cain, for women, the Abbey of the Holy Trinity, and William, for men, that of St. Stephen. Lanfranc was the first abbot of the latter, and when William became King of England, Lanfranc was made Archbishop of Canterbury and Primate of the Church of England, as well as privy councillor of his king. William excelled in the art, so essential to government, of promptly recognizing the worth of men, and of appropriating their influence to himself whilst exerting his own over them. About the same time he gave his cotemporaries, princes and peoples, new proofs of his ability and power. Henri I, King of France, growing more and more disquieted at and jealous of the Duke of Normandy's ascendancy, secretly excited against him opposition and even revolt in his dominions. These dealings led to open war between the suzerain and the vassal, and the war concluded with two battles won by William, one at Mortimer, near Neuchâtel in Bray, the other at Veraville near Troyes. After which, said William himself, King Henri never passed a night tranquilly in my ground. In 1059 peace was concluded between the two princes. Henri I died almost immediately afterwards, and on the 25th of August, 1060, his son Philippe I succeeded him, under the regency of Baldwin, Count of Flanders, father of the Duchess Matilda. 
Duke William was present in state at the coronation of the new King of France, lent him effectual assistance against the revolts which took place in Gascony, re-entered Normandy for the purpose of holding at Caen, in 1061, the estates of his duchy, and at that time published the famous decree observed long after him, under the name of the Law of Curfew, which ordered that every evening the bell should be rung in all parishes, to warn every one to prayer, and house-closing, and no more running about the streets. The passion for orderliness in his dominions did not cool his ardour for conquest. In 1063, after the death of his young neighbour Herbert II, Count of Maine, William took possession of his beautiful countship, not without some opposition on the part of the inhabitants, nor without suspicion of having poisoned his rival, Walter, Count of Vexin. It is said that after this conquest William meditated that of Brittany, but there is every indication that he had formed a far vaster design, and that the day of its execution was approaching. End of chapter 15, part 1